Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. This episode is a continuation of our series of episodes to keep you posted on frequently asked questions surrounding the accounting impacts of COVID-19. Today's focus is on revenue contract modifications. We covered this topic in a podcast this fall, but we've decided to revisit it as in the current environment, we're hearing more and more questions on different types of modifications. To help bring us up to speed on what's new, joining me remotely from their homes are PwC partners and popular podcast guests, Pat Durbin and Angela Ferguson. And as a reminder, don't miss our new segment at the end of each episode asking a feel-good question of the day to help give us a moment of positivity during these unprecedented times. We kicked off the segment in last week's podcast and have received a lot of positive feedback, so we're keeping the silver linings coming your way. And so now, on to the show. So Pat and Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. And the topic we're going to cover today is contract modifications. And Angela, this is something you and I talked about just, um, I think we released an episode in early October, and there hasn't been any changes to the guidance. But given what we're seeing with some of the sort of COVID-19 knock-on impacts and the fact we are starting to see some different types of contract modifications, we thought it would make sense to revisit this topic in the current environment. So sort of with that setup, Pat, can you share with the audience some of what we're seeing from a contract modification perspective? So yeah, the term contract modification has a very specific meaning in the context of the, the accounting guidance, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But what we're really talking about are just changes to your existing revenue contract. So some of the things you might think about are if you've got any kind of a long-term contract that has um, you know, commitments over time or service uh, requirements over time, you might be thinking about, are you modifying the pricing to it? Um, are there some minimum commitments that you might be either reducing or spreading out as sort of an accommodation for the you know reduced activity that people might be seeing? Um, some of the circumstances might be membership type arrangements where you know somebody has a, a membership for a specific period of time and maybe they actually missed part of the period. So maybe it's like a seasonal membership or season pass to certain types of uh, resorts or other um, uh, services. So you might be thinking about, should I be making some accommodation for that unused portion of the season, maybe giving somebody credit toward a future season pass or maybe a future um, trip in the case of like a travel situation. You might be just thinking about giving basically discounts to your customers or maybe discounts to uh, people who aren't currently your customers. And we'll talk about the distinction between those. So one of the things that makes this a little bit more interesting in the current environment is that in the normal course of business, you would expect a lot of these customer or contract modifications to be bilateral or two-way negotiations, meaning the customer and the supplier coming together to agree on some new terms. But in the current environment, because of the significant impact and broad-based impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on so many sectors, we've seen some companies make modifications almost 
unilaterally or voluntarily, meaning just trying to do something perhaps as a goodwill gesture to their customers or to an attempt to maintain their business at some level, even perhaps on a reduced basis. So it makes it a bit more challenging to discern, is that really a modification of a customer arrangement or some other broader-based marketing offer? Yeah, I know when we were preparing, um, the three of us had quite a debate around gym memberships and all of the different varieties of things that um, various gyms have been doing. So I don't know that we'll get into those specifics, but definitely think all of us, even in our personal lives, have seen a lot of changes to, uh, quote, contracts that we have or, or contracts that we have with different types of companies. So maybe with that background then, Angela... If we're looking at a change to a contract, then what is the first step that we should use when evaluating the accounting for the change? Yeah, Heather, I mean, as Pat alluded to, I mean, really the first decision point is whether you've actually modified a customer contract at all. And the revenue standard defines a modification as a change in the scope or price or both of a contract that's approved by the parties. And sometimes this is going to be fairly straightforward that you've modified the contract. In other cases, it may not be quite as clear. Um, and to give you an example, if you suppose you have an existing customer contract that's in process, so it's an open contract, and you decide to um, sell an additional product or service to that same customer. And so the question is, is that a modification of the existing customer contract. And really, it's going to um, depend on the facts and circumstances. What we think could be helpful here is looking at the concepts in the contract combination guidance. And just to be clear, the contract combination guidance is not specifically on point because that guidance only applies to contracts that are entered into at or near the same time. But some of the concepts in that guidance may be helpful in this situation because what they're really trying to get at is whether you're creating, I guess, a nexus to the existing customer contract. And so the factors that that guidance considers include, one, are the contracts negotiated as a package with a single commercial objective? Two, does the amount of consideration paid in one contract depend on the price or performance of the other contract? And three, are the goods and services promised in the contracts, uh, are they part of a single performance obligation? So those are some things that uh, you might look to to consider whether you've actually modified an existing customer contract. Um, And just to give you an example of a, a situation that would clearly not be a modification. And this is a live fact pattern we've seen where a company decides to give free access to a new service, say a a web-based platform, to a group of companies. And that group of companies includes both existing customers and non-customers, but everybody's getting the same free service. In that case, we'd say it's likely not a modification for the customers who are already existing customers because you know everybody's getting this you know free service it's effectively a marketing offer that they're giving to um, this whole group of companies uh, you know as a more obvious situation in other cases it's going to be definitely more facts and circumstances and require some judgment 
And so maybe one of the other scenarios we see as opposed to the broad-based offer of some sort of free service to, to everyone, you might just be seeing discounts or credits that are offered only to existing customers in the context of existing customer arrangements. And some of those may be very typical to what we would see in the ordinary course of business, um, just simply some sort of a refund or a concession in relation to a particular performance issue that you'd either have to deal with as a, essentially a return or perhaps it's an update to variable consideration. In other cases, they might be more of an incentive to enter into a new contract, which would have a different accounting consequence, or they could, in fact, be a modification. So we'll talk a little bit more about those different scenarios. Okay, so Pat, that's a perfect segue into my next question. And Angela, I'll direct this one to you. So then can you go ahead and give us a refresher? If you've concluded that you do have a modification, then how does the accounting work? Sure. So in the in the standard, there's effectively three types or buckets of modifications. And so I'll walk through each of the three. And normally, we'll see a modification that will land in one of these three buckets. It is possible that you could have elements of more than one, but I mean, typically, you're going to just fall into one of the buckets. So the first category is when additional distinct goods and services are added to the contract for a price that's equal to their standalone selling price. And this is uh, the most straightforward type of modification, and it's just going to be accounted for as a separate contract. You're just adding new things at their standalone selling price. And accounting for the original contract would be unchanged in this situation. The second bucket, um, you don't meet those criteria to have a separate contract. But after the modification, the remaining goods and services are distinct from the performance prior to the modification. In this case, you're going to account for the modification on a prospective basis. And it's as if the old contract was canceled and a new contract's been created. So the way to account for this is any remaining unrecognized contract consideration from the original contract is added to any new consideration that's being added as, as a result of the modification. And then you would allocate that amount, the sum of those two, to the remaining goods and services to be provided based on their current standalone selling price. So you're basically going to do a new allocation based on um, all the current facts and circumstances as if this was a new contract. The third bucket, um, you also don't meet the criteria to be a separate contract, but the remaining goods and services are not distinct from the past performance. And in this case, you're going to account for the modification on a cumulative catch-up basis. So for example, suppose you have a, a construction contract that's a single performance obligation, and you're updating that contract to change the scope or price. So in this case, because the remaining uh, part of the contract is not distinct from what's been performed so far, you're going to update the total transaction price based on any changes in pricing. And then you'll update the percent complete based on any changes in scope. 
and then you would uh, record a cumulative catch-up adjustment for um, you know to update the amount of revenue that should be recognized using those new inputs. And this could be either a positive adjustment or a negative adjustment. And one of the more common fact patterns tend to fall into that second bucket you mentioned, mm-hmm. where modifications accounted for on a prospective basis. And as you pointed out, the new consideration or the old plus the new consideration needs to be reallocated to the remaining goods and services. Maybe an example that we're seeing right now is kind of adding on additional time to a service contract that we're accounting for over time. For example, like the gym membership that you mentioned, Heather, and you might be adding that time either for a significantly reduced fee, maybe recognizing a reduced ability to benefit from the membership for some period of time, or maybe no no fee at all because there was no ability to benefit from it. In that scenario where you have this concept of the cancellation of the old contract and a creation of a new contract, the reason why you get to that conclusion is because you have a series of distinct goods or services. Those time-based arrangements tend to be a series. And so each element of that series is, is distinct. So that's how you end up in this, this part of the model. But what ends up happening then is you essentially recognize the remaining unrecognized consideration. Maybe it was an upfront fee or membership fee of some sort over sort of this longer period of, of service, um, which probably ends up meaning you'll have revenue for a longer period of time, but at a reduced amount for each unit of the series. Importantly, it may not automatically lead you to kind of a straight line or spreading that over that longer period if there's some period of time when you're not actually performing any service. Because if you're not performing any service or providing any access, you may not have any revenue. The one other point I would highlight here, and it relates to this reallocation of consideration concept especially if you have multiple distinct goods and services that you're reallocating to. In the current environment, you probably need to be a little bit more thoughtful about what is the standalone selling price of each of those items that I'm going to use for my allocation because a lot of times you'll do an alloc- or you'll do a model for standalone selling price allocation and that will stay relatively consistent for some period of time. Well, obviously we've had a very significant shift in the economic environment here, so that standalone selling price might not be the same as it was when you originally started doing the accounting for these contracts. Okay, I think that's helpful. And as I was listening to both of you, I was thinking like so much of accounting, I think the key here is understand the guidance and then clearly understand the circumstances of the modification that you are providing, because obviously there can be so many different scenarios and facts and circumstances here. That really leads then into another question, which on I recently did a podcast with John Bishop and uh, Suzanne Stefani on rent concessions and really focusing on the accounting for those concessions by both the lessor and then we also talked about the lessee. So it kind of raises a question here, how do price concessions, obviously outside the scope of lease accounting, but how does a price concession interact with this modification guidance? Yeah, and you know, as Pat discussed, that uh, we are seeing in the current environment, companies are making these types of price concessions for revenue contracts as well. But unlike the FASB's recent Q&A that provides a, an accommodation 
for lease modifications in the context of the current environment. There isn't um, a similar sort of shortcut or accommodation for revenue contracts. I mean, so that what that means is that companies are going to have to assess whether a change in price for a contract is just a change to a an estimated price concession, or is it uh, actually a modification of the contract? So to explain the difference between those two, you know, as we discussed on our recent podcast on revenue and collectability, if you expect to provide a price concession in a revenue contract, this means that you effectively have a variable transaction price. You're estimating the amount of the price concession and then updating that estimate um, on an ongoing basis. So contrast that with a change to a contract price that is actually a modification because it wasn't anticipated or expected and you're really changing the enforceable rights and obligations in the contract. You know, that would be not an update to an estimated price concession, but actually a modification to a contract to change pricing. Oftentimes, uh, when we see a contract being modified to change the pricing, um, it's also in connection with other changes, like changing also the scope of the contract at the same time. Um, and that's probably more straightforward that that's a true modification of the contract. But it is possible to have a modification that changes only the price. So it's going to be important to distinguish between these scenarios, because if you have uh, first just a change in the estimate of a price concession, so you're just changing your um, estimated transaction price, that would be um, an adjustment to revenue and based on your original allocation to the performance obligations, you would just be updating that original allocation and recording an adjustment, update your estimate. In the modification scenario, if you're actually modifying the contract to reduce the price, you're going to apply the model that we just walked through. And oftentimes, you know, if you're going to be in that second bucket where you're accounting for the change prospectively, the change to reduce the price is going to be you know, a prospective adjustment, as we described. So the accounting is going to be very different between those two different scenarios. And then I'd also just point out is, um, you know, because Pat also mentioned this, that it is possible when you have a price concession that you may just be giving a refund for a past um, transaction. But this normally occurs when there's been some sort of past performance issue, um, you know, like a quality issue or a customer satisfaction issue with a past transaction, and you're, you're now giving the customer a refund. So if, if you're giving a price concession because of you know, COVID-19 and the current environment, I mean, that's probably um, not what's happening because uh, you know, a refund would only be if there had been, again, like some sort of performance issue in the past. Yeah, I think this this area of trying to distinguish sort of which model I'm in for the for the price concession ones, meaning is it a modification or is it an update to an estimate of variable consideration or or the refund, I think is a really somewhat nuanced area. I mean, in some ways might be fairly straightforward, but you really need to be thoughtful to the point you made earlier, Heather, about really understanding like why is that concession being offered. And we've talked a lot in the context of the uh, modification and sort of maybe in the context of 
contracting with the customer to perform some service or provide a good. But you can also see concessions in the context of just extending payment terms for services that have already been delivered. Or you might see those also in the context of of new arrangements where you're offering longer than usual payment terms. Again, um, something we're seeing fairly commonly in, in this environment. And so you need to think about what those terms really are. So if you're going to offer a price concession, you loop back to what Angela just talked about. If you're talking about the extended payment terms and sort of a concession there, you may need to think about whether you've introduced a significant financing component into the arrangement, which would also need to be separated out from the revenue contract. Okay, I think that's helpful. And I think key point there is one, Angela, that you touched on, which is the interaction of collectability with your revenue recognition and just making sure you're keeping that in mind as well. So definitely encourage um, our listeners to listen to the two of you on a podcast we issued a couple weeks ago on that topic. And Heather, maybe I could just uh, jump in real quick before we, we move off of that, because you mentioned the the podcast on collectability, which was very much focused on the, the revenue side of the equation, which is really what we're talking about. You also do need to think about that in the context of your assessment of your accounts receivable under the credit loss standard. So to the extent you're providing additional extension of payment terms, it's possible that that could have some bearing on your um, credit loss reserve as well. So different assessment than the revenue one, but also something you need to think about. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you, Pat. Okay, so then with that, why don't we move to our final topic for today? And this is an area we always like to talk about on our podcast, which is what companies should be thinking about from a disclosure perspective. Yeah, Heather. And you know, there are a number of disclosure requirements in the revenue standard. And if you look at those requirements, you're not going to see a specific disclosure related to modifications. However, there are you know, broad principles around what information companies are supposed to provide in their disclosures, including information about nature, amount, timing, and uncertainty of revenue and cash flows. So clearly, you can see where some of the you know, judgments you've been, you might make around accounting for modifications could fall in that category and just really require disclosure under the general principles that the revenue standard lays out for um, disclosure requirements. There are also various specific disclosures related to things like changes in balance sheet accounts and disclosures around unrecognized performance obligations that may be impacted by modifications. And so you you may pick up some description in, in those areas as well. And I mean, just generally, um, certainly if companies are making modifications to their revenue contracts as a result of the current environment, uh, you know, that's clearly going to be information that users are going to find decision useful. So we would expect there to be, you know, clear, transparent disclosure in this area. Another thing that sometimes comes up in the disclosure context is the subsequent events question. And so that's sort of an overlay over almost any area of accounting, but could apply here if you had a material contract that you modified after the period end that was going to impact future periods, disclosure would likely be warranted. In most cases, those would be what we call non-adjusting subsequent events, so there'd be no accounting recognition of the contract modification in the prior period. But again, if it was going to have a material impact going forward, you'd, you'd think about disclosure 
of that modification. The one place where you could have an impact from a subsequent event on the financial statements is in the context of variable consideration and updating your estimate based on information that becomes available after the balance sheet date. This gets to be a little bit more of a complicated judgment about whether the change was really new information about conditions that existed at the balance sheet date or something that happened after the balance sheet date. And we had a lot of that was fairly challenging in the context of the calendar year end quarters that ended in March, just given the sort of chronology of how governments were responding to the evolving situation. Um, So some of those were, in fact, adjusting subsequent events. Some were actually non-adjusting, but just another thing to, to keep in mind in this context. Yeah, and I think in this environment, subsequent events are likely to continue to be something companies have to think about just given how how much things are changing. So, um, but before I let you go today, we're going to wrap up with our new final segment. So Pat knows about this. Angela, this is new to you. Basically trying to look for silver linings and everything going on right now. So the question for today is being at home, what you've had additional time for that you don't normally have. So I'll give you an example that I have more time for my yoga practice, which is nice, and hopefully balancing out all the additional baking I've been doing with my kids. Um, <laughs> so with that example, maybe Pat, since you've done this before, I'll ask you to go first. Yeah, one of the things we've been doing is I've been teaching my kids to play Pinochle, an old game I used to play with my uh, uncles when I was growing up. So we rediscovered the Durban family's love of this old German card game. Very fun. How about you, Angela? Uh, Well, I guess the one thing I've been doing while at home is uh, I've been taking a walk around our neighborhood every day. And and I have an uphill walk that I get to go to a, a top of a hill and see a great view of our Um, our entire neighborhood. And my husband's been calling it my new commute. uh, I don't have a a regular commute to the office, but it's a good time to get away and listen to, you know, one of my favorite podcasts, maybe catch up on one of your podcasts, Heather, and get outside and in nature. So that's been, that's been really enjoyable. Yeah. And enjoying all the better air we've been having in California, Angela. So that's really yeah. good too. So definitely a better view. So, well, I like both of those ideas. Pat, maybe I'll have to find out about Pinochle because I'm always looking for things <laughs> to do with my kids. So. But anyway, both really appreciate those insights. So thanks for joining me today. That does it for today. And going along with the theme of today's positivity question, I'd love to know what new hobby or activity is keeping you busy these days. So please write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com. And please join me back here again this Thursday as we continue our week-long look at revenue recognition. The next topic up will be contract costs. Angela Ferguson will be joining me again, and you won't want to miss it. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.